That Roaring Twenties jazz-aged music you just heard a bit of was from a piece by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby, a piece titled Cinconada. It's the opening track on a new album on Sadie Records, Leo Sowerby, the Paul Whiteman Commissions, and other early works. Now, those of you who have listened before know that every time we come out with a new release on Sadie Records, we come out with a new classical Chicago podcast, and this is episode 46. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and this album features performances by band leader Andrew Baker, an especially formed group for this album, the Andy Baker Orchestra, and the Avalon String Quartet. And I am so pleased that my guests on this podcast are both Andy Baker and Anthony DeVroy of the Avalon String Quartet and Going forward, I will refer to them both colloquially as Andy and Tony. So welcome, Andy and Tony. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Jim. We are recording, by the way, this podcast on May 19 of 2021 for an album that will actually be released on August 13. And I should note that this is the first time in over a year that we're recording in an actual recording studio. And my thanks to Mystery Street Recording Company for hosting us This makes recording this podcast so much easier than the ones in the past and allows for more flowing conversation and definitely more consistent audio quality. So I hope you enjoy that aspect of it. This album will be the culmination of what we're calling our Summer of Sowerby because three albums in a row this summer, June, July, and August, all feature music of Sowerby. And this one is entirely music of Sowerby. And if you don't know who Leo Sowerby is... You should, because he's probably the most important composer associated with Chicago. He was born in Grand Rapids, but came to study music in Chicago as a boy and had an incredibly rapid rise. When he was 17 in 1913, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra premiered his violin concerto. In 1921, he won the first Rome Prize Fellowship entirely by reputation, The actual first competitive prize went to Howard Hansen, who was, by the way, a lifetime friend of Sowerby's, who joined Sowerby in Rome that year, 1921. Sowerby was choir master and organist at St. James Cathedral for 35 years, starting in 1927, also taught at the American Conservatory here in Chicago. During the 1920s and 30s, he was essentially de facto composer in residence for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Frederick Stock, which premiered a new Sowerby work just about every season. And not just in Chicago, he was actually, during this period, the American composer most often performed by American orchestras around the country. And he capped it off with a 1946 Pulitzer Prize for his cantata, The Canticle of the Sun, which, by the way, is recorded on Sadie Records with the Grand Park Orchestra and Chorus. So that's a quick rundown. As I mentioned, this is our summer of Sowerby, so when we're recording this podcast, there are five albums featuring Sowerby's music in Sadie's catalog, but by the time this album is released in August, there will be eight albums featuring uh, Sowerby's music. In the past, we've recorded a number of his orchestral works, mostly world premiere recordings, also his really wonderful concert piece for organ and orchestra with David Schrader and the Grant Park Orchestra. And of course, I mentioned already his Pulitzer Prize winning cantata. I've had quite a lot of experience with Sowerby as a producer, but it'd be interesting to know from both of you what your experience is. I'll start with Andy. What is your experience with Sowerby's music prior, obviously, to recording the pieces on this album? It's, it's familial. Growing up in London and being there and going to school there, I was not at all aware of Leo Sowerby's music until 
after I moved to the States in 2001, was fortunate to have as a now uncle-in-law Francis Crociato, who is a major part of the Sowerby Foundation. Upon making that connection, Francis introduced me to a lot of his music and recordings, and we have been talking about trying to get these pieces recorded for probably seven or eight years at hmm. least. Wow. And Francis Crociato has been president of the Leo Sowerby Foundation since 1993 and has definitely done more than anyone to promote Sowerby's legacy. And we'll talk about some reasons why his legacy needed promoting despite his initial renown as a composer in the period I mentioned. So, Tony, what was your experience, if any, with Sowerby? Virtually none. I was aware of his name I had heard a couple of his works maybe in organ concerts over the years. It's possible I played a piece of his just as a sub in the Grant Park Symphony, but the way that festival works, the music comes and goes so quickly that no one really has the time to <laughs> dig much deeper in, into the pieces that we're playing on any given week. So long story short, I had not played anything by him. All right, well, I'll ask this then in reverse order. So for you, Tony, I guess working on the pieces on this album, and we'll talk about which ones they are very soon, uh, but... What kind of a perspective did they give you on Sowerby's music? It was revelatory just to find out more about him, to learn the music that my group played, but also to become familiar with the pieces that Andy prepared and recorded for this project, and just to hear the range of his versatility, especially listening to these works from five-year window earlier in his life, and then to also do some listening to especially his choral music and vocal music later on in his life. And there's kind of an obscure piece for viola and organ that I sought out. And it's such a fascinating range of style and, yeah, just versatility. To me, that's such an important distinguishing mark for a composer when he can work so convincingly in so many different idioms, different styles, different types of musical language. Excellent. So for you, Andy, since you had some more familiarity even before recording these pieces, what would you say Sowerby's hallmarks are as a composer? Well, I think a very subtle understanding of syncopation. And syncopation is something that seems to flow through much of his work for all ensembles, a sensitivity to that rhythmic counterpoint. I think an orchestrational sophistication that almost no composers had at this point for in dealing with the ensemble forces used in Sincanata and Monotony. So the, the Paul Whiteman band, his use of some rather unusual instruments, treatment of those instruments, so slide trumpet, mutes, as well as uh, straight mutes, which were becoming fairly widely used at this point, but also Harmon mutes, plunger mutes, which are completely from the jazz idiom. And so even though I had some familiarity with his choral and organ works in particular, I was really taken by how convincingly he brought forth the characterizations of Roaring Twenties jazz, the kind of music that Whiteman was playing. Well, I should give my own perspective here, and a lot of this initially was courtesy of Francis Crociata. Sowerby was born in 1895, and so in 1995, Francis hatched a plan to get some of Sowerby's orchestral works, which had been mostly laying dormant for a long time, uh, recorded. And we worked with uh, wonderful Chicago conductor Paul Freeman. Freeman is the founding music director of the Chicago Sinfonietta, but also was music director of an orchestra in Prague, the Czech National Symphony. And we ended up recording Sowerby's music with both, a lot of tone poems and overture type pieces with the orchestra in Prague, and then the second symphony, American Masterpiece, with the Chicago Sinfonietta and those recordings. I think the first one came out 
1997 and the next one, I think, the following year. And then later I mentioned the Grant Park Orchestra recordings of both the organ and orchestra work, which really is a masterpiece of scoring, and then the cantata. And for me, a couple of things that stand out is his incredible use of counterpoint. It really spectacular. He definitely wrote in that American romantic idiom that you might associate with his longtime friends, Howard Hansen and Samuel Barber, and then just his own distinctive harmonic language. There's a reference, I forget where, to a piece having chords that could only be on a score with the name Leo Sowerby, and I think that's really true. Despite his ability to write across so many styles, for the 550 works that he did write, there is an identifiable Sowerby sound, even as he adjusts it for all kinds of different ensembles. So speaking of which, let's talk now about this special ensemble. So the way this album is arranged, to give a little history here, Paul Whiteman, the great band leader who introduced the world to Rhapsody in Blue in 1924, did a series of what he called symphonic jazz concerts. And the composers he took on this tour in 1924 and 1925 were really a who's who of back then. Of course, Gershwin, Ferdy Grofay, who we all know from the Grand Canyon Suite, Zez Confrey, a ragtime composer best known for the piece Kidden on the Keys, and Leo Sowerby. Sowerby wrote two pieces for these concerts, and those bookend the album. And then in between, with uh, the string quartet, we have three pieces from the same period. So it's called the Paul Whiteman Commissions and other early works, because all of these pieces were written when Sowerby was in his 20s. But what makes these Whiteman pieces particularly interesting, and one reason they have not been revived, is he wrote them extremely specifically for the Whiteman band. Sowerby actually followed the band around for a couple of years, learned all the players, and these were players who didn't stick to one instrument necessarily. They could play, the wind players and the brass players could play multiple different instruments. So what Sowerby would do was write to the different players' strengths on different instruments. So at the top of the stave, you don't have an instrument like you normally would. You have a name, Mr. McLean or Mr. Maxson or Mr. Sharp. And at any one time, they could be playing English horn, clarinet, alto sax, slide trumpet, you name it. So how did that manifest itself for you, Andy, putting together this band and dealing with these scores? Well, it was certainly a challenge. The scores, as you mentioned, refer to instrumentalists and the instruments they play, although there was even some conflict in that, in that in Sincanata, the listing of instruments is there at the beginning, but in Monotony, it's not. It's just the player, and I had to go through the score line by line to figure out exactly what was needed to be played by whom. So the two pieces are Sincanata is the first one, which was written in 1924, and that comes at the beginning of the album, and then... At the end of the album is his Symphony for Jazz Orchestra, which he titled Monotony for reasons we'll explain later. It turned out to be an unfortunate title for critics who were offended by the piece for reasons we'll get into later. But these scores are really nothing like anything I've ever seen. And of course, they're only in manuscripts. So it was quite a job, obviously, for you to, to do this. And the hope is that proper performing editions can be made because hopefully after people hear this album, they'll want orchestras to pick up these pieces and, and perform them live. I should note, while this is the world premiere of the original version of Sincanata, uh, Sowerby did do a two-piano reduction of it, which does appear 
on an album, a headline by Sowerby student Gail Quillman and her student Juliet Sin, which is all piano, solo and duo piano music of Leo Sowerby and gives a different perspective on the piece, although I think to hear it in full color, as it were, with the full jazz orchestra really does take it to another level. I would agree. The two-piano version is very striking and enjoyable and nimble in a way that the orchestral version isn't, but the orchestrational colors, I miss them now. Well, thank you for mentioning that. For you, Andy, what was it like playing the role of Paul Whiteman for the purpose of this recording? Well, the first thing was finding people who would excel playing these individual parts. And so, as you mentioned, the woodwind books were certainly a challenge in that you had sopranino saxophone through oboe and English horn down to bassoon and contrabassoon. Fortunately, in Chicago, due mostly to the thriving musical theater scene here, we do have great players who play all these instruments. But finding the particular doubles, someone who played clarinet and saxophones and bassoon, and then another who played oboe and English horn, were a scheduling challenge because there are only a couple of people that I really wanted to be involved with this. And luckily, I was able to get my first choices. The one compromise that we ended up making, on I don't even know if I'd call it a compromise, is that there is a part written for a double bassist who also plays bassoon and contrabassoon. So there was bassoon on a saxophone book and bassoon on a bass book. And in the end, we hired a standalone bassoonist additionally, partly because the books were just too difficult to play you know it was mm-hmm. the, just the mechanics of getting through all those things was just incredible once the players had been identified again players who have this theater background tend to be real stylistic chameleons and so there wasn't a great deal of instruction i needed to give about how this music would be played the fun part for me being involved in projects like this is helping translate between musicians who have a jazz background and musicians who have a classical background and to get across, perhaps most especially in strings, getting across the intent of the music in a way that will be stylistically appropriate. If I could add one other note, uh, there's another strange connection that I have with this music in that I taught for a time at Northwestern University and Don Owens was the coordinator of the jazz area there. And uh, long before we came to this, Northwestern had actually performed these two works under his baton. So I was able to uh, have some conversations with Dio about this music in advance of the sessions as well. And he was able to give me some really fabulous insight for the challenges of making it happen. Of course, there was an unfortunate aspect to those performances, which is the solo trumpet player missed the performance and the conductor ended up scat singing those parts. (laughs) I think he had a a car accident or his car broke down or something on the way to the concert. Yeah. Now that you've described the challenges and the different players, how would you describe this actual sound world of Cinconada and how it fits in the 1920s era of composers like Gershwin? And obviously there are huge jazz influences, both orchestrationally and melodically. A lot of glissandi and, and blue notes and the use of muted sounds that I mentioned before. I hear a, a lot of influence of Stravinsky in Cinconata in particular, Cinconata and Monotony are a little different in their sound world in that Cinconata is more heavily dependent on the string writing than Monotony is. It's much more wounds and brass led. Balancing those contrapuntal forces was a great deal of fun. Before we zero in on the excerpt I wanted to share, Tony, I know you've listened to this piece too. What are your thoughts on it? 
It's a great piece. Really so fun to listen to. I heard a lot of similarities immediately with the first movement of the string quartet in D minor, which is on this album. And I know we'll talk about that in a little more detail later on, but just the idea of the classical form, which of course I'm always listening for, you know, the sonata form, but the use with the jazz orchestra was really appealing, really interesting to hear. In the liner notes by Francis Crochado, which are just terrific and so informative, he poses the question in an oblique way about how Rhapsody in Blue, which was written for the Whiteman Orchestra, has had such a lasting impact, and then Sowerby and other pieces kind of went by the wayside, and how did that happen? And I wonder if part of that has to do with Rhapsody in Blue just being such a showcase for the piano and being all about the solo Mm. piano part, whereas this piece in Cinconata, the piano is much more just part of the ensemble and blended in, and the focus is really more on just the splash of color from all the different instruments from the variety within the band itself, and that gets really featured in this piece. But that's harder to grasp onto than, oh, this fancy pianist is playing this 15-minute cadenza with <laughs> with an orchestra behind him, it, the way Rhapsody in Blue is. So I, I wonder if that had anything to do with the evolution of those pieces after Whiteman's launching of them. That's actually a great point. I never yeah. thought of this before, but I guess the piece does have concerto for orchestra, but jazz orchestra quality to it. It's not a subtle piece, right? It's a very (laughs) vibrant piece, but it's much more understated in that way than the Gershwin, which Mm -hmm. is so obviously just the concerto vehicle for the solo pianist. Yeah, I think that's an excellent insight. And maybe combined with Gershwin's celebrity that carried everything along. Yeah, and also Gershwin being based in New York also, I think, made a big difference. Sowerby's choice to stay in Chicago. And actually, that's something I should mention. Since Sadie Records is a label devoted to Chicago musicians, one thing I found that is a lot of these musicians, I would say in some ways more music-focused than necessarily career-focused. Sowerby was certainly that way and, and really didn't make any effort, frankly, to promote his works beyond their initial performances and more and more concentrated on his church and organ music. And I think that's part of the reason that his orchestral music himself, not really bothering to champion it, was superseded to a certain extent. Mm. Although it is worth mentioning that I think there are 83 documented performances of Cinconata by the Whiteman band. He kept Mm -hmm. that piece as part of his repertoire for most of that period of time. But then certainly it faded away. And the challenges of orchestration I think was certainly part of that. If a full orchestral score was made of Rhapsody in Blue, a regular orchestra score, I should say, and the kind of unique forces that you need to put Cinconata together or monotony were probably a, one more hindrance in making it part of the repertoire. Do you think you would risk losing some of the special, the unique quality of the piece to transfer this piece to a more conventional orchestra scoring? The niche instruments that are yeah. employed and niche techniques even? It's an interesting question. When symphony orchestras and opera orchestras play music written for these kind of forces, I think immediately of like West Side Story, mm-hmm. where there are a lot of woodwind doubles, they tend to just break out the books. Mm-hmm. So you exactly. employ more people. And if it was done that way, it would probably be just fine. Finding a slide trumpet player <laughs> is a whole different story, though. Well, but orchestras <laughs> can find those specialists. Yeah. And I make a good point that Sowerby had his initial champions, Paul Whiteman, actually made the mistake because this did not help Sowerby one bit, of telling the press that he thought Sowerby was a greater genius than Stravinsky. Mm -hmm. But obviously he was a devotee. Uh, Frederick Stock with the Chicago Symphony I've mentioned, E. Power Biggs, the great organist. Once these players and conductors were no longer performing... 
there was nobody else taking up the mantle for a long time. So I think that definitely affected things. Well, I think it's time to get back to some music. We heard an excerpt from the piece to start off this podcast, and you may have noticed in the tune you heard, there's a similarity to the song, If My Friends Could See Me Now, from the 1960s musical Sweet Charity, which seems quite a coincidence because, of course, Sowerby wrote this 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. Who knows if Cy Coleman, uh, the composer that might have heard this piece along the way at one point. Do you have a theory on that? It's possible. You would imagine a curious young composer in New York in the 20s would have probably made it his business to go and see the Whiteman Band. The melodic similarity is striking, but it's also short. And I think it's so dependent on the syncopated rhythm that brings the similarity together, which is also very prominent in the string quartet. So I think it's probably a coincidence. Well, it is quite one. I mention it because the part we're going to hear now is toward the end of the piece when that theme comes back and carries us to the end. And it is quite an ending. Is there anything you'd like to say about it? (laughs) I would just say that it was an enormous amount of fun to record. Great. Well, here is the conclusion of Leo Sowerby's Cinconata with Andy Baker conducting his Andy Baker Orchestra. That very lively jazzy music you just heard is the conclusion of a piece called Cinconata by Leo Sowerby, Chicago composer, piece written in 1924, very specifically for the Paul Whiteman Orchestra for its tours in the 1920s. It was performed there by a group called the Andy Baker Orchestra, and I'm here with the conductor, trombonist also, who formed that band, Andrew Baker, who's one of my two guests on this Classical Chicago podcast. As I mentioned, 
the way this album, Leo Sowerby, The Paul Whiteman Commissions and Other Early Works, is arranged, the two big pieces written for the Paul Whiteman Orchestra are bookending the album. And then in between, we have some works from the same period when Sowerby was in his 20s. And this is in the 19-teens and 20s with the Avalon String Quartet. And my other guest on this podcast is Tony DeVroy, the violist of the Avalon String Quartet. Before we get to that, uh, we should talk a little bit about the quartet itself. So, Tony, can you give us a little short bio of the quartet career highlights and whatnot? Sure. The Avalon Quartet was formed in the mid-1990s. The members were all students at the Cleveland Institute at the time. They put themselves together as a group to study at the Norfolk Festival in Connecticut over a summer where they got to work with the Vermeer Quartet. Following that, they were invited by the Vermeer to become the graduate quartet in residence at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. They won some big awards early on in the Fischoff competition and the Munich competition and started concertizing and got a career going. I joined the ensemble in 2004. At that time, we were based in Indiana University, South Bend. And a few years after that, upon the retirement of the Vermeer Quartet, the Avalon became the faculty quartet in residence at Northern Illinois University. So we've been in residence at NIU for 14 years now. As a group, we focus on the traditional quartet repertoire. I think we're most proud of our complete cycles of Beethoven and Bartok and Brahms quartets, but we've also done a lot of work. It's very important to us to stay connected to music of living composers. We've gotten to work with some really prominent names in the field, including Augusta Reed Thomas and Harold Meltzer and Stacey Garrup, with whom we worked on our first album for CD which included her string quartet number four, as well as the Debussy Quartet and music of Golihov and Britain. So we've done that album with Sedi and also another project along with the Cavatina duo as part of their Sephardic Journey project. We performed some new works with them for that album. So this is our third recording with Sedi and... This was quite an experience to us to be involved in the reconstruction of these works because of the form that the scores existed in uh, to try to prepare them for this recording was unlike anything else we've tackled before. And we'll definitely talk about that. I should mention the members of the Avalon String Quartet are Blaise Manier and Marie Wang violins. Of course, Anthony DeVroy right here with me, viola and Cheng Huli cello. And I should note that composers really like working with you guys. Stacy Garrup, a wonderful Chicago composer whose music appears on 10 different CD albums at this point, had an interesting history with that fourth quartet because it was written actually for another quartet initially that premiered it, and she was quite happy with their performance until she heard your performance. And she said, <laughs> now these guys play this quartet the way it really should be played. You'll be pleased to know we have plans with her for a project in the coming year or two. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, the quartet pieces on this album were recorded this January 2021 when live in-person concerts were not really an option at that point. So what was it like to record during this fallow period? It was such a crazy time. Work didn't stop for us altogether. Our teaching continued all through the past year almost entirely in person, masked at a distance, but NIU was up and running all the way through the year in a way that was astonishing to see when you weren't right in the middle of it. So we continued preparing programs. We did performances. At first we had live audiences of 
three, six, 12 people as the year went on. Uh, gradually, that opened up a little bit more. The, the restrictions on campus opened up a little bit more. We were able to inch back towards a normal-sized crowd. Yeah, so we were working all through the year and spent a big portion of our fall working on this Leo Sowerby first quartet. It was such a disorienting time to go through. One thing we had to adjust to was keeping a little more distance within the group itself, just keeping ourselves a little more spaced apart and wearing masks all the time for rehearsing and performing. Now that we're at this point where we're on the other end of the mask wearing, I feel like it took such a long time for everyone to get used to the idea of wearing masks for everything. It's probably going to take us at (laughs) least that long to get used to not doing that again or to start to feel comfortable not doing that again. We rehearsed this morning. We're all vaccinated. We were all still masked the entire time. That was the new normal for this past year. But in the dead of winter and the days that you came out to decal for this recording were particularly cold days. This was a lifeline to hang on to just in terms of staying connected to productive work and interesting, engaging work. That's really nice to hear. I assume it does help a bit that the violinists in the group are married to each other. Right. That that (laughs) made the whole distancing issue a little easier to navigate. And I should mention that the jazz orchestra pieces were recorded in January of 2020. We got those in just under the wire. Just in time. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's turn to the first piece of the three string quartet based pieces on the album. It's called Serenade for String Quartet. And it's really one of two early works that really propelled Sowerby's career. The other being an organ piece that was so popular it was immediately orchestrated called Comes Autumn Time. And incidentally, that appears on City Records' July release of this year with organist David Schrader in the original version. And on the very first Leo Sowerby album we recorded with Paul Freeman is the orchestral version of Comes Autumn Time. So I feel like we've covered the beginnings of Sowerby's career now. What are your thoughts on this piece, Tony? It's a beautiful piece. It's really fun to play. It's very intricate. It was tricky to learn because of how the counting changes throughout, and Andy alluded earlier to just the intricacy of interaction between the different instruments in Sowerby's scores. This is certainly an example of that. We talked a lot about syncopation in the synchonata. That applies also in the serenade. The opening motive is very syncopated in the first violin part, but never in an edgy way. This piece has a very rounded gentle quality to it in a lot of the actions of the piece. Sowerby writes at the top of the score in a free, open, and easygoing manner. So it, it's a very lively piece, but also just very just very gentle experience to listen to. The beautiful second theme that the viola gets to introduce. It's just a long, flowing, seamless melody. So this, I think, exposes more of that side of his writing, the lyrical writing, the, the beautiful long phrases. And since you mentioned that indication, I should note that One of the hallmarks of Sowerby, which he got from his teacher, Percy Granger, is that all of his indications are in plain English, but often very colorful plain English. Right. That's so neat to see. Uh, Perhaps the most famous one is from his great organ symphony, the second movement of which is titled Fast and Sinister. (laughs) And the joke goes, because it's so hard to play, that it's fast for the audience and sinister for the organist. (laughs) Andy, what are your thoughts on hearing this piece? It's beautiful, I think, Tony's observations about the rhythmic contrast between this and Cinconata are, are spot on. It uses a lot of the same rhythmic fragments, but in a very different way, more of a rhythmic suspension and release than the kind of jazzy, hard-hitting syncopation. But it's very lush and intricate and warm, and uh, yeah, I've very much enjoyed listening to it. 
Well, for me, I think the theme and the way it's harmonized has a very folk-like quality, especially at the beginning of the piece. Lots of open strings Mm -hmm. sustained under the, the melody. So yeah, just that very resonant open sound to the quartet. So I thought we'd hear a section that brings out a lot of these qualities I'm not sure it's officially in sonata form. More or less, yeah. yeah. So there is a feeling of a development. And what I thought I would do is play about the second half of the development section, which gives you some of those rhythmic contrasts, and then going back into the recap of the very folk-like theme. So here is that section of Serenade for String Quartet by Leo Sowerby, as performed by the Avalon String Quartet. You just heard a section of a piece called Serenade, four-string quartet, by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby, a piece written in 1917 as performed by the Avalon String Quartet. I should note this is the only piece on the album that's actually not a world premiere recording. The Cinconata we heard earlier is a world premiere, and everything we're going to hear for the rest of this podcast is also world premieres. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, I hope you'll check out the whole album, which you can find as a physical CD on the Sadie Records website. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or on Amazon.com or Archive Music. If you prefer to stream your music, it's available on all the major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Music. If you'd like to hear it in high-end audio, you can check it out on 
Prime Phonic, Idagio, and sites like that. And I sure hope you'll want to after hearing this really remarkable music. Next on the album, and I mentioned these are all world premieres, and this is more than just a world premiere because this is essentially a reconstruction, I would say. It's our B. He wrote two string quartets, and this is the earlier quartet in D minor. Sowerby's process, as which is very nicely explained by Francis Crociata in the notes, involved a pencil sketch, which was basically just the notes and minimal indications. And then later there would be an ink sketch with dynamics and, and more indications. And then finally, if something was published, it would be worked into a proper performing edition. This piece, the ink sketch was lost. It was never published. And so you only had the pencil sketch which had almost no dynamic markings at all in it. So how did you deal with that, Tony? This was an unprecedented experience for us, something we had never tried before. So fortunately, the Sowerby Foundation had prepared printed versions of the pencil score. So it's not quite like reading handwriting. It would have been even harder if it had been reading handwriting. But we were reading printed music, but it was just notes, barely a a dynamic marking or a slur or any indication like that, any kind of articulation or, or dynamic marking. None of my quartet mates had been familiar with Sowerby's music any more than I was. I checked in with a friend of mine named Stephen Buzard, who is the current director of music at St. James Cathedral in Chicago, which was Leo Sowerby's job for a long, long time. So Stephen is in that role now, and he's very familiar with Sowerby's music as an organist and as a choir leader and, and conductor. So I just checked in with him and said, hey, do you have any advice? Can you point me towards some pieces that I ought to be looking at? We just don't know what the score would have looked like if Sowerby had gotten to the point of ink printing it and putting in all of his markings. And Stephen said, well, I recently performed the organ symphony, which is a piece for solo organ. And he said, I found 12 notes in the entire score that did not have some kind of articulation marking, some kind of (laughs) dynamic, some kind of descriptor on them. So Sowerby is very detailed, very precise in his markings. And to not have any of that on the page at all, it's like starting from scratch. So judging from what Stephen had said, we knew that we had to come up with ideas of this that were really very vivid and very specific and very detailed, even if we were only ultimately guessing at whether this was close enough to what Sowerby would have actually written. So I don't know exactly how to describe the process. We just had to start somewhere. My colleague Blaise kind of took the initial leap of just mapping out a lot of different ideas of articulation and dynamics and just to give us some kind of starting point. The idea was try this and see what happens. No harm, no foul. If we decide this doesn't really work, then we just play around with a different possible solution. Yeah, maybe the hardest part was just taking that very first plunge into, let's just commit to some ideas about this and realize that they are wide open for revision later on, but we had to just start somewhere and and try to get a definition to the sound that we were going for with this piece. So I remember our first read-through of the first movement of the piece, when we hadn't done any of this initial guesswork at the markings, it just felt extremely impenetrable in its density. And we played through it once or twice, kind of scratching our heads. And it was only a couple of days or maybe weeks after that when we decided it was time to come back to this score. And I did a little more practicing on my own. And it dawned on me, this is ragtime music. When you don't see any articulation and you don't see the little slur connecting a note over the beat so that you're hearing a syncopated beat, it's a little hard to see at first. But once you realize it in that way, it all starts to make sense. Just the same jazzy syncopated action that we have already heard in the Whiteman Synchonata piece. So once you start to uncover aspects like that that are central to the identity of the piece, then details can flow outward from that starting point. 
And I should note that Francis Crociata lined up some prominent Sowerby scholars and players, and you sent uh, tapes of some later rehearsals to them. And by the time you had gotten to those rehearsals, the general consensus from these Sowerby veterans was you nailed it. <laughs> I don't think they had that much to offer by right. the time they got to that. And the other thing is Sowerby's students, composition and organ students, right. many of them wouldn't have a whole lot of input into what we were talking about in terms of how we are articulating with our bows, like that the instrumental approach is just so different that it really would have had to ultimately fall to a string player to make some kind of judgments about how we could define this stuff technically on our instruments. Well, despite the fact that Sowerby would put all those specific markings within a score, he very often would actually mark the word freely <laughs> a lot in his scores. And in fact, that organ symphony you mentioned, it has those dynamic markings, and it also often says freely right. over various passages. So I believe he wanted the interpreters to have that kind of leeway to play it the way they were feeling it. Yeah, and I think just from coming across snippets of his own writing or, or uh, references to his writing. He seemed to have not exactly a self-deprecating quality, but seems like a fairly modest man. He himself said that he was guilty of overusing an accent mark over too many mm. notes. I got the impression that he felt like he maybe went overboard in the amount of detail that he would put into his scores when given the chance. So having not had his input in that way, uh, it seems like he did want the performers to ultimately just feel like it was organically coming from them, not that they necessarily had to feel constricted by how much he marked up his music. And I should note that Organ Symphony is generally considered Sowerby's masterpiece and is probably the piece of his that's been most performed, appears as the major work on that recording that we're coming out with, or by the time you hear this podcast that we have come out with in July of 2021, featuring organist David Schrader and Francis Crociata, who has heard scores, at least, of performances of that piece, actually called David's performance for him a revelation. So that shows that even a piece that's played that often, a good player can find new things in it. Was it any help to have also been working on the Serenade, which did have all those Sowerby markings in it? Yeah, gave us some ideas of how to approach the sonority that he may have been looking for, certain idioms that felt familiar from that score. There are definite connections to be drawn. Well, before we drill down on the piece itself, which is in three movements, Andy, what are your thoughts having listened to the performance? I think the quartet have found their way through the music marvelously. It's interesting, Tony's observations about having to make decisions and, and go from there, and it's something that works for the first time, works that they aren't recorded, that haven't been performed a great deal. You do just have to make some choices, and then if you decide to make different choices later, that's fine, but you can't try to creep your way into a piece of music. You have to make some decisions and trust that your instincts and those of the composer probably aren't that far apart. Well, since we're going to actually hear a section of the second movement, Tony, let's talk about the outer movements first. What would you want to say about those? Well, as I mentioned, the first movement following a slow and somber opening, which... That's the is, marking, is somber it, and slow. It is the marking. <laughs> it's also got mock gravity to it, I think, you know, the, the tongue-in-cheek quality to the, mm -hmm. the seriousness at the beginning of the piece. And then it eases into this very fun, very light and lively. As I said before, I feel like it's very ragtime-influenced first movement. And then the third movement of the piece, the final movement of the piece, is epic. It's a big movement. It just goes through 
incredible transformations and there's an amazing density to the texture and, and to the counterpoint going on in the movement. So in that way, this piece is a departure from the more conventional string quartet writing, which features the most dense, the most complex material in the first movement. And then that gets unpacked. And by the time you get to the finale movement, that's often a lighter and it's more about showing off than it is about getting into the nitty gritty of the structure of the composition. So this piece, in a way, inverts that evolution of, of the score. I would definitely agree with you about that tongue-in-cheek quality to the first movement. And it ends with quite a little exclamation point. And then the third movement has one of those great Sowerby markings, fast and with passionate urge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and indeed, it really urges to the end. Yes. But I thought, because I want a chance to show Sowerby's tender side, and you really get that in this second movement. It's a beautiful movement. In our conversation just now, we've been drawing connections to Stravinsky, to other American composers. Blaise kept coming back to the French influence that he heard in the harmony, especially in this second movement. It happens to be in F major, which is the same key as the Ravel string quartet. And there are a number of turns of harmony that feel very closely related. That's a piece I think my quartet could probably wake up tomorrow morning and play it if we had to. We know that score like the back of our hands. There's a lot of recognizable influence of that kind of sound in the second movement of this quartet, which is played with mutes on for most of the time. It just has a very expansive, very beautiful, serene quality to it, but also this really engaging middle section of the piece. In preparing for this conversation with you guys, I uh, just kept a running list of different composers that I could think of whose music I could hear some kind of connection to Sowerby's. And just to give you the short list off the top of my head, I heard Copeland, Bernstein, Ravel, Paul Hindemith, Benjamin Britten, Gustav Holst. There's this moment in the second moment of this piece that feels like the Holst St. Paul suite. So all those names that I just mentioned, some of them are direct contemporaries of Sowerby's, but others of them are later on. So I don't feel like he was just trying to put together sounds that he already heard from other composers. He was really doing something original that made an impact and had a, a lasting influence on other composers. And he was definitely in that milieu. I, I think I mentioned earlier how much he was admired by contemporaries such as Howard Hansen and Samuel Barber, but it is true. He was a voracious consumer of repertoire. He was famous for sitting down at a piano and from memory hammering out the Rite of Spring, for example. <laughs> His students love to tell stories about things like that. Any jazz guy I've ever talked to about string quartets mentions the Ravel Quartet as their favorite piece. Have you had that experience? Yeah. As you mentioned, I could hear resonance of that clearly in the second movement. Yeah. And you mentioned it coming in, the Dvorak Quartets as well, and I suddenly thought, oh, there's some sound world sure. there yep. that, that's recognizable too. And you mentioned also the use of muted strings. That is also an aspect of the slow movement of Leo Sowerby's great piano trio, much later work from 1953. This quartet is from 1923. And you can hear that on Sadie's June release with the Lincoln Trio. Includes that much later masterpiece of Sowerby's. I thought people might enjoy hearing a portion now of the slow movement, the second movement of the string quartet in D minor of Leo Sowerby. And this particular excerpt, I'm starting with a almost the beginning of the movement. It's where the cello comes in with its beautiful theme and then builds from there. Uh, any thoughts about that section before we play it? It's a gorgeous opening statement, just a beautiful moment for the cello. Everyone else just kind of moves out of the way and lets this beautiful cello solo happen. Well, here is that section of the second movement of the string quartet in D minor from 1923 of Leo Sowerby as performed by the Avalon String Quartet. 
You just heard a portion of the second movement of the string quartet in D minor by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby, a piece from 1923, as performed by the Avalon String Quartet. And the Avalon String Quartet is Blaise Manier and Marie Wang violins, Anthony DeVroy viola, and Cheng Hu Lee cello. And I'm here with Tony DeVroy talking about these interesting early works of composer Leo Sowerby. And there's one more on the album that involves the string quartet, but it's not just string quartet. A piece called Tramping Tune, which Leo originally wrote as a solo piano piece in 1916, and then began to write all kinds of different arrangements of the piece, including the version we're going to hear here, which is piano and strings, or in this case, string quintet, although it can be done with more strings too. So I guess the first question is, how did you choose your collaborators for this piece? Two wonderful guys. Winston Choi is a longtime friend of the quartet. We've collaborated with him a number of different pieces. Winston is the director of piano at the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt, and an extraordinary pianist that uh, we've been happy to work with on a number of occasions. All the members of our quartet have lived in Oak Park at different times where Winston lives as well, and oh, turns out Andy also. So we know him personally from around town as well, and just a, a good friend and an extraordinary pianist to work with. Alex Hanna, the principal bassist of the CSO, I've never seen a bass player quite like him before. I get to sit in every once in a while with the orchestra as a sub, so I've got to see his work up close, and I've also got to see him play as a concerto soloist with the orchestra. When you watch him play, it really looks like he's playing a cello just in the way he throws his bow arm just so freely and energetically in a way that I think is really hard to do on the bass, but he's just got such physical command of the instrument. It's incredible. And a neat little detail about this project, working with Alex. So we talked about being in the dead of winter in January. At this point, the orchestra, the CSO, really hadn't done hardly any playing for many, many months. So I was talking with Alex before our session about what have you been up to these days? And he's a very upbeat guy. He said he was just trying to stay positive, trying to stay directed. He was doing a lot of his own projects in his practice room. And he said, one thing I've been doing is playing around with different tunings of the strings of my bass, just experimenting with different Mm -hmm. things. And he actually played this session. He made this recording with us with his strings tuned like a cello. And normally bass strings are tuned completely different from the fifths that the other string instruments tune in. The bass is tuned in fourths. So Alex actually opened up that tuning, made the strings match cello strings, but an octave octave lower. So we have the viola, then an octave below that are the cello strings, and then an octave below that are the bass strings. So there was this vertical blend that you don't normally get when you add bass to the string quartet. It's a detail that I don't know that anyone's ear could pick up on just listening to this recording, but I had never thought that a bass player would think to do that because what that would do is space out the notes from one string to the next so much that it's a much more active job for the left hand just to be finding its notes when you open up the tuning in that way. So this is just a small insight into Alex, into his capabilities on the instrument and also the lengths that musicians were going to at this time just to stay engaged with their work and to be trying to look at things a new way and staying inspired in that way. So I just thought that was a fascinating thing that he brought to this project. I found that actually discussions of different bass tuning strings is much more widespread than I would have imagined. Mm -hmm. I was in a conversation with two bassists a couple of years ago where I found that tuning in fifths or tuning even EB, EB are things that bass players are often toying with. You know, you said that you don't think anybody would hear it, but I wonder if the sympathetic resonances of those octaves would sound different. 
And I guess the only way to find that out would be to record the piece again, again with Alex <laughs> using different tunings. This might be a little in the weeds for uh, yeah. the podcast audience. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that Alex and Winston both are such energetic players. This piece is a real romp. And then here's the sour bee marking. It's so perfect. He marks the piece poundingly, but not fast, whole solidly. <laughs> May I also read the little pencil Please. note that he puts on the Please. cover page of the score under the title of the piece? It says, descriptive of political rally times, off-key bands, street corner harangues, a stirring come-along spirit. And as Francis Crociata notes in the album booklet, this piece is probably as close as Sowerby ever came to Ives. And, right. And it definitely has that quality to it. It's an outrageous piece. It's great fun to play. Yeah. I mean, to my ear also, and of course, it's interesting how it started as solo piano, but then you add the strings and the context may have even changed because this is when Sowerby was actually heading off to uh, World War One and actually took up the clarinet so he could play in bands there. And to me, it almost is like a, an Elgar pomp and circumstance march, but through the mud. Well, it's called tramping, right? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, also, of course, refers to things like backpacking and stuff like that, too. But yeah, it has the wonderful quality to it. Anything you wouldn't want to add from listening to it, Andy? No, I don't think so. But again, just a, a wonderfully evocative piece of Americana. And actually, I should also mention it has a real theatricality to it, which is one reason why we put it before the return to the jazz orchestra pieces. It's almost like a bridge back to that. And of course, this album contains three very different kinds of sound. You have the jazz orchestra, you have the string quartet, and then you have this piece, which adds piano to string quintet and literally adds it because Sowerby actually never wrote a score for the string players and the piano player together. So the piano player is playing the original solo piano score and you guys are playing the string score together and it all has to work. And I just want to put a quick shout out to CD Records' wonderful engineer, Bill Malone, who I think did a great job of capturing these three very different kinds of sound from the smaller, more intimate sound of the quartet to this piece, which has a, certainly a bigger sound with the additions of the double bass and piano. And then of course, the full jazz orchestra sound. How was it like for you working with, with him, for, actually for both of you? Oh, Bill's extraordinary. I mean, just a, effortless to work with, just always open to trying to capture what it is that we are looking for in the sound, but also leading a very confident guiding hand to what works well and what doesn't. So yeah, I trust Bill in any situation like this. Of course, for you, Andy, Bill had some very tricky things to pull off with all the different combinations of instruments, and there were definitely some challenges there. Miking woodwind sections that are playing multiple instruments is a challenge. And this was my first time working with Bill, and it was just an absolute pleasure. I think a, a really important aspect that a, a recording engineer and a producer bring to a project are the atmosphere they create in the room. And Bill's calmness and assured confidence around the musicians, and yours too, to give you a credit, oh, you. just helps to set the stage for a relaxed and productive recording process. And in fact, it was my honor and pleasure to produce this recording. Of course, um, I've become such a devotee myself of the music of Sowerby, so it was really special to be able to produce it. Since the piece is short, we're going to hear the whole thing this time, not just an excerpt. And so this is Leo Sowerby's tramping tune for piano and strings from 1917, performed by the Avalon String Quartet with pianist Winston Choi and bassist 
Alexandra Hanna. That piece you just heard is called Tramping Tune, scored in this case. It actually exists in different versions, but this version is for piano, string quartet, and double bass piano, and essentially string quintet. The pianist was Winston Choi. The string quartet was the Avalon String Quartet. And the bassist was Chicago Symphony Orchestra principal, Alexander Hanna. I really hope you enjoyed that tune. And if you want to hear more, you can acquire the whole album, as a physical disc from cdrecords.org, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, our website, 
or Amazon or Archive Music, or you can stream it on all the major and high-end streaming sites. And however you like to enjoy your music, I hope you will want to enjoy this album after hearing these excerpts. Well, as I mentioned, the album is bookended by the two pieces written for jazz orchestra, originally written specifically and commissioned by Paul Whiteman for his symphonic jazz concerts of the mid-1920s. And the next and the last piece on the album, it exists under a couple different names. We're calling it Symphony for Jazz Orchestra with the subtitle Monotony. And that has to actually do with the stage set for this piece was a bit of an attempt at theater by Sowerby, and Sowerby would be the first to admit that theatrical part wasn't his strong suit. He was good at writing the music, but the idea of this piece, it had a gigantic six-foot-five-inch metronome on stage in front of the conductor, which moved at a constant 40 beats per minute (laughs) while Whiteman was actually conducting from behind it. There were, like at a vaudeville show, ladies coming across the stage with placards with the names of the movements and sections. And from a theatrical point of view, the piece was frankly a flop. (laughs) Uh, But uh, from a musical point of view, it got a mixed critical reception. We'll talk about why in a moment. There's a very specific reason for that. The piece is actually based on the 1922 Sinclair Lewis novel, Babbitt. I'm going to read from Francis Crociata's notes, gives a capsule explanation of what the piece is describing. So he says, the symphony's four movements follow along as the work-weary Babbitt. And Babbitt is a character who is not very culturally aware, shall we say. He's really in the rat race, right? Yeah, neither aware nor curious. Just interested in the bourgeois middle-class life. Everything else is just something he has to be dragged through. (laughs) And in fact, he is in this piece. So as the work-weary Babbitt is dragged against his will to the theater in the first moment titled Nights Out, then to a cocktail party masquerading as a tea party because this was at the height of Prohibition, that movement's titled Fridays at Five, then to Sunday Services, a movement titled Sermons, and then to a concert, the content and quality of which is explained to him in the following day's newspapers by six archetypal music critics. And Sowerby has great fun thumbing his nose at these critics, which might not have been the most savvy thing to do. Yeah, the book was written in 1922 and obviously would have been recognized by many at the time. And I think maybe we would put this career move down to youthful exuberance (laughs) on Sowerby's part that having a swipe at critics in one of your pieces is not perhaps a great idea. What challenges did this piece afford that were different from Cinconata? Well, many. Some were purely logistical. In coming to this piece, I had two separate scores and two very different sets of parts. Resources from Francis, resources from Northwestern University, and from another set of parts that Francis located And there were two orchestrations of this piece, or two orchestrations of the woodwind parts in particular. Sowerby was made note of his annoyance at having to rescore it after the initial performances. At first, the scores I was looking at contained different instrumentation to the ones that we eventually were using. And purely from a technical point of view for me, the reorchestration of the woodwind parts never made it into the score. They were only written in part form. So I would be looking for a a clarinet part that was in the third woodwind book was actually being played in the first woodwind book. And so there was a lot of just trying to keep track of things from that point of view. 
obviously the scale of the work is very much more substantial and technically very demanding, especially from the woodwind and brass players. The first movement is almost like a trumpet concerto in the extreme range of devices that the first trumpet has used from soaring orchestral melodies to screaming high double B flat lead trumpet and then of course the slide trumpet with a harmon mute to go with it. One decision that I came to very quickly early on was to just discard this idea of a constant pulse going throughout. Sowerby himself, as you mentioned, said that dramatics were far from a strong point. These 550 works that he wrote included every form except opera. And ballet. Oh, and ballet too, yes. The score is indicated that there is a constant pulse of 40 beats per minute and metric modulations are included. But as soon as I started to look at the work, it was clear that this one would be incredibly difficult because some of the fast tempi were just absurd, but also monotonous. Um, that music should not... Beethoven 7, of course, is a famous swipe at the idea of a metronome in music. The idea that a pulse doesn't move doesn't make a great deal of sense, most of the time, in uh, concert music anyway. So quickly eschewing that idea and looking for the way that the themes connected and the movements flowed, they're all quite sectional, flowed within movements and then putting the larger piece together as well was a big process for something that there was almost no previous record of. Well, excellent. Before we play a little bit of this movement, Tony, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this piece. Yeah, it's a fascinating piece. I was struck by a very strong memory within the first minute or two of listening to this piece for the first time. It takes a little explaining, but I hope you'll bear with me for a minute. So in New York City, there's a pedestrian tunnel that gets you from the Port Authority bus terminal to Times Square. I guess what it does is it lets you transfer from the A train to the 1 train. And as you walk through this tunnel, if you look up at the ceiling hung on the steel beams as you walk through the tunnel, hung on the steel beams of the ceiling are signs. Every 10, 15 seconds or so, depending on how fast you're walking, you get to a different sign which has just a couple of words of text printed on it. And as you walk through, what this text is giving you is actually a poem. It's called Commuter's Lament. Mm. It's a work of public art. And I can read you the whole poem because I remember it so well from having walked through this tunnel when I was younger. So the lines that you come across, say, overslept, so tired, if late, get fired. (laughs) Why bother? Why the pain? Just go home and do it again. And that's the poem. And then the final tile on this installation is a picture of an unmade bed, like a bed that you had to, to leave to get there in the morning. And So just thinking of the idea of this Babbitt character and the the rat race that you described, Jim, and also remembering this tunnel, which the walls have that familiar, what we call subway tile look to them, just everything about it is so quintessentially New York. So hearing this piece and hearing this New York-y, nightclub-y, Whiteman sound, it just came together in this very clear memory that I have of walking through that tunnel so many times and just being able to recite that poem. with I've never actually seen the poem written out as a poem. I've only seen it on these hanging tiles in the tunnel. Yeah, to me, that brought the whole piece together. It made it feel instantly recognizable. One other thing that I wanted to mention about this piece that I found so interesting was just the way Sowerby and the way the liner notes here outlined the descriptions of the different movements as different aspects of his life felt a lot to me like Strauss's Ein Heldenleben. 
hmm. and just the idea of different movements of the piece. It's not exactly narrative, but just describing different aspects of his life. Of course, in this case, it's not the hero's life. It's like the anti-hero's <laughs> the anti-hero, life. Yeah. <laughs> Another detail from Francis's writing, he quotes a music critic from Sowerby's day who makes reference to Sowerby's brilliant contrapuntal technique with a gorgeous sense of instrumental color with expert treatment of form. And if you just kind of read me that description, and I didn't know who the musician was that you were talking about, one of the first names that would pop to mind would be Richard Strauss. Obviously, this musical style is completely different, right? Completely different language, completely different milieu that Sowerby and Strauss were writing about. I think, in a lot of ways, equally skillful, equally personal and compelling as a musical figure in a totally different kind of story. But the connections to that piece jumped out at me right away. I should note uh, that at 25 minutes, it's also a lot shorter than I held in later. A little bit shorter. A little. <laughs> yeah, there's a parallel sense of scale and heroism, I think, or bravura in this work. Yeah. And you mentioned, Andy, that it has a different kind of sound than Cinconata as well. Yes, the string parts were originally written as optional, or at some point were optional in this work. And although it's hard now to imagine Mm -hmm. performing it without them, impossible really, the virtuosity of the woodwind writing in particular is quite a challenge, and one that the players rose to fabulously. There's a lot more rhythmic complexity, both in terms of the metric modulations and the syncopation, but also there's large portions of quintuplets in the second movement that require a delicacy and finesse to bring together. Well, I thought to show off a little bit of this piece, we'd actually listen to a portion of the first movement and dovetailing so nicely with Tony's description of that poem in the tunnel from the Port Authority, because I think this is along the same lines. Here are the individual sections, and I suppose these would have been the placards being walked across the stage while the music was playing in the first movement titled Nights Out. The different sections are the weary babbit, the invitation out, the ineffectual protest, tabla d'hote, aisle seats, the snore, relapse, and snatched home. And uh, we're going to listen to the latter part of the movement, which has that unbelievable trumpet solo that you were referencing earlier, Andy. And you definitely hear when Babbitt is snoring <laughs> at one point. What would you like to say to set up this mix of sounds? I would like to give a shout out to Joey Tartell, professor at Indiana University, when I thought, who can play with orchestral panache, can play screaming lead trumpet and might own a slide trumpet? And he was literally the only person I could think of. His performance throughout this movement and the work in total, but when you get to this part of the first movement, he has already been doing everything up to this point. So yeah, a shout out to Joey. All right, well, here is the concluding portion of the first movement of the Symphony for Jazz Orchestra, subtitled Monotony, by Leo Sowerby, as performed by the Andy Baker Orchestra, conducted by Andy Baker.
That wild music you just heard was by Leo Sowerby from a piece called Symphony for Jazz Orchestra, subtitled Monodony. It's world premiere recording. In fact, everything on this album, Leo Sowerby, the Paul Whiteman commissions, and other early works, with the exception of Serenade for String Quartet, are world premiere recordings. That piece we just heard is performed by the specially formed Andy Baker Orchestra, conducted by band leader Andrew Baker, or Andy Baker, my guest, along with Tony DeBroy of the Avalon String Quartet on this classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. It's interesting, in the, his notes for the album, Francis Crociata quotes critic Glenn Dillard Gunn, who was a supporter of Sowerby's, who suggested that one of the reasons these pieces didn't have a, a very long life, even though a lot of Sowerby's music went into decline later in the 20th century. A lot of his works did have a decent run, but this one, you know, once Paul Whiteman dropped it, really didn't go anywhere. And we've talked about some of the reasons with the way it's scored. But Gunn suggested contemporaneously that one of the issues, well, two issues, one, that the Paul Whiteman audience wasn't necessarily the right audience for this piece, but also that a conductor like Sowerby, Devotee, Frederick Stock might have been able to work around some of those issues that you mentioned, Andy, and make the piece potentially more presentable for other ensembles. What are your thoughts on that? Of course, it's impossible to know, but it's certainly a reasonable theory. Paul Whiteman was a far better impresario than he was musician, and it's possible that he may not have been particularly up to the challenges of working through this music, just from a technical point of view. I'm reminded when you're asking the question about the original reception of Prelude, Fugues and Riffs, which when performed by a jazz ensemble, as it was commissioned for, didn't go particularly well. The Bernstein piece, of course. Yeah. The unique demands of instrumentalists with an equal capacity for interpreting classical concert and jazz music were even more hard to find at that period than they are now. They're much easier to find now. And Paul Whiteman's band was made mostly of jazz musicians who may have little to no training in concert music. And although this music is written in a jazz style, it is still definitely dependent on orchestral technique and ensemble playing. So it could be that a performance by the CSO would have brought forth the music in a more convincing and just technically more accomplished way. The idea about which audiences is just as important and... While the Whiteman audience may not have been particularly interested in a piece like this, particularly at first with a giant metronome and the <laughs> the image for me with the placards is the ring walk in a boxing match. Right. You know, that's the one that right. keeps mind. Frank could have just been a little perplexed by the whole staging of it. I think in the concert hall it may have received a warmer reception. Well, now that people have had a chance to hear from all the works on the album, uh, what would each of you want listeners to take away from the album as a whole, and the portrait one gets of Leo Sowerby as a young man in his 20s. I think, as Tony mentioned at the beginning, just the incredible range of expression and versatility of craft and mastery of craft at such a young age. It's remarkable music. And I would come back to what Andy said at the beginning (laughs) with the focus on syncopation coupled with the melodic gift and also the attention to adeptness with musical form. 
I will note again that this album is the culmination of what we're calling our Summer of Sowerby, the 2021 June, July, and August releases on Sadie Records, all featured music by Sowerby. The June release features the Lincoln Trio performing his masterpiece of chamber music, the 1953 Piano Trio, and that's on an album called Trios from the City of Big Shoulders. Our July release is an album of organ music of two Chicago composers, Frank Furco and Leo Sowerby, and is the one album on Sadie Records so far that actually has the music Sowerby is best known for. What we have done up till now is really bring out the music that really needed to be given a new life on recordings so people could hear what audiences in the 1920s and 30s and 40s were hearing regularly. And then, of course, this album with bringing this music from the 19-teens and first half of the 20s, so from this period of Sowerby's life. I hope after hearing this, you'll want to check out some of those earlier CD albums of Sowerby's orchestral music. But to move on to other things, I mentioned we're recording this in May of this year, 2021. Recently, the CDC just announced that we can all take our masks off once we're fully vaccinated. And of course, Things are changing very rapidly right now. The Chicago Symphony actually has a couple of concerts uh, coming up, and then the Grant Park and Music Festival and Ravinia Festival and Rush Hour concerts are all happening in person. But that has not been true for the last, oh, 15 months. So I wanted to ask each of you how you've been dealing with the COVID crisis over this period, and has the recent loosening allowed you to start doing things you haven't been? Yes, is the simple answer. (laughs) The last year has been a great challenge for everybody. For performing musicians, it's been very difficult, not just in terms of not being able to earn money and to work, but also the connection that we all have with each other and with music that we had to lose during that time. For me, as a professor at UIC, I was able to really throw myself even more wholeheartedly into my teaching there and to take care of some other parts of that job in ways that I don't always have the amount of time to do. The summer afforded some opportunities for outdoor playing, outdoor recording. Now that things are starting to open up, I'm very happy to be performing again and just recently performed at the Jazz Showcase. It was wonderful to see you there, Jim. It was wonderful to be there. (laughs) And delighted that these venues have seemingly come through this time and look forward to just more and more playing. And I think for me, and I would imagine for many musicians, we'll never take for granted what we get to do ever again if we did. I'll never complain about another gig, I promise. (laughs) And for you, Tony? And for the quartet, of course. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the work didn't altogether stop for us during the year. It was definitely a less busy year of concertizing, which frankly, I didn't actually mind sort of stepping back from that, being forced to step back from that a little bit and take stock and just re-examine things and have a freshness to it when we're able to get back to it as we are starting to be. The summer brings some travel for us that last summer did not allow. Frankly, the focus of the last year for me has mostly been just seeing my older two boys through their year of school, which mostly happened at home, which was not an experience that any of us want to repeat again. Um, Like Andy, I was able to put more of my own attention into my teaching, devote a lot more that way. And that was actually very rewarding. And I think the students that I went through this year with, we have a stronger connection as a result of the circumstances under which we were 
working. So Andy and I have a similar experience in that way. Just it's good to be on the, the other side of this. You mentioned Rush Hour concerts. We'll be performing on Rush Hour concerts August 10th, which is just a couple of days before this album release. We'll be playing the Sourby Serenade on that program. And I'll be on the same series earlier in the summer in July, but also getting back to our usual festivals in Washington State and in Michigan and the places that we like to go over the summers. In fact, I was just going to ask, what is next for you in the ensemble? And of course, I'm greatly looking forward to that Rush Hour concert, which of course is at Sourby's home base, the St. James Cathedral, and will be three days before the album is released. Right. Right. And other summer activity includes a project at Ravinia that we've been doing except for this past summer, I've been doing the past couple of years, which combines jazz combo with string quartet in premiering new works by young composers for that medium. So that's going to be nice to return to. And into the fall, finishing up our Beethoven cycle, which had been, been put on hold for most of last year, which includes premiering new short compositions that are paired with the six early Beethoven string quartets. So we'll be premiering the last of those, and continuing to explore the music of Florence Price, which has been an extraordinary discovery for us and for many other ensembles in recent years. And Florence Price, African-American woman composer from the first half of the 20th century, first African-American woman to have a work performed by a major American symphony orchestra, and that was specifically her piano concerto in 1933 with another great African-American Chicago woman composer, Margaret Bonds, at the piano being the first person of that character to perform with a major symphony orchestra. It's a lot of Chicago history. And And Florence Florence Price Price. was, for a time, a student of Leo Sauerbrunn. Oh, that's right. It's neat to uh, look at their music at the same time. And Andy, what you mentioned at the Jazz Showcase, of course, that was your sextet, Baker's Million. Mm -hmm. Are you touring with them some more? We're not touring at this point. We are performing more in Chicago. Things are happening very short notice at the moment still in, in my part of the musical world as doors keep being opened by the CDC and we wait for the state and we wait for different places. So we're just peeking our heads out of the doors at the moment still. This past year, not only had the COVID crisis, but also racial justice issues coming to such a head with the George Floyd killing. And there have been a lot of artistic responses to both twin crises, really. Have any particularly inspired either of you? It has been an incredible year of reckoning, indeed. And from an artistic point of view, I don't know that I have been able to be impacted immediately in the same way, but in my teaching and in the work that we're doing at the university and so many institutions doing right now, I'm very closely involved with steering our department and school through this conversation about equity in race and other areas too. Yeah, the aspect of this whole evolution that is most interesting to me and and most important to keep tabs on is not the immediate response, but the long-lasting response, and hoping that changes that we recognize need to be made now can be made, not in a sort of, okay, put it up there and perform it, and there we did that, but in a way that music that has been overlooked that should not have been can find a more lasting, more permanent place in the repertoire of, of most performing ensembles. So that's the part that I'm most hopeful about and most attuned to as I try to get a higher altitude look at this conversation in our field, in addition to, you know, out at NIU, some of the same kinds of conversations that Andy described, a lot of conversations going on along those topics. Structural solutions to a structural problem. And we have to be very careful about performative responses as well, and not look at this only as something that we need to do because we 
feel guilty about the way that we have done things in the past, but also just the incredible opportunities it's bringing us with Florence Price being yeah, being a most such of, for great example. material to be mined and discovered. Excellent. Well, finally, I always like to add these podcasts with this question, which I think you might have very different perspectives on. Take this in whichever order you want. Uh, what makes the Chicago music scene special for you? For me, just the openness, the support, the not wanting to put up barriers or definitions or boundaries, just a willingness to support each other's work and to look for ways to cross-pollinate and to encourage and work off of each other's strengths rather than trying to edge each other out. Yeah, Tony put it perfectly. This is a city full of world-class musicians who support each other and welcome each other and are willing to consider each other in all kinds of different contexts. And the, the not putting in boxes is something I particularly value about Chicago. Excellent. Well, again, my guests on this podcast have been trombonist, composer, band leader, Andy Baker, and Tony DeVroy of the Avalon String Quartet, an ensemble that is appearing for its third time on Sadie Records on this album. Again, the album is Leo Sowerby, the Paul Whiteman Commissions, and other early works. And this has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. Thank you so much for listening.